Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, my name is Christopher Price of the Boston Globe. Welcome back to another edition of the Patriots Report, right here on the Believe Podcast Network. Today's guest is Bob Sosi, the radio play-by-play voice of the Patriots. You have to know two things about Bob. One, he's maybe the nicest guy in all of Boston sports media. And two, his voice has been at the center of so many great moments involving the Patriots over the last decade. We talked about a bunch of stuff during our conversation, including some of his memories of Patriots radio analyst Gino Capaletti, who passed away earlier this week at the age of 89. We also discussed his thoughts on where the team stands at the midway point of the offseason, what the priorities are for the team moving forward, and what he thought of the 2022 regular season schedule, including the trip he's most excited about taking this coming season. But first, I want to let you guys know this episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your sports betting needs and information. Find all of the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the NBA and NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball, fights, and even next season's futures. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It is super easy to get started. So head over to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code BLEAV. That's B L E A V to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. Now, let's get to our conversation with Bob Sosi. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. I have a handful of questions for you. I want to start off with a couple of really simple ones. We're at the halfway point of the offseason right now. What do the Patriots need to do moving forward between now and the start of training camp in late July to get to where they need to be? Where are the priorities? Hey, Chris. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you. And it's great now to get past the draft and start to think about questions like that exactly, uh, as opposed to the buildup to the draft process and all the speculation, the skepticism regarding Mm -hmm. players that we really don't know about and how they're going to do at the professional level. Uh, Because only today, in fact, as we, we chat here and record this conversation, are the Patriots rookies beginning their true NFL experience in Foxborough. But uh, as, as I look ahead, I think one of the, the difficulties in trying to answer that question thoroughly is that there are so many areas that are unknowns to us organizationally, including the coaching staff. What are the roles, for example, of the Patriots offensive assistants now? Who are the Patriots offensive assistants <laughs> as we speak? That's been one of the great mysteries, of course, of this offseason. But I think more than anything, when you look at the team and what they have done thus far through free agency and even in the way they they have drafted players, it it seems like organizationally the Patriots have a a much greater belief in the team that they have on paper today and a belief that there are fewer questions or at least deficiencies uh, in the the organization right now on on the roster uh, that they have today than a lot of people on the outside believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to me that you know, a lot of that has to stem from the year one experience for Mac Jones, the belief that a lot of players that were here a year ago, including the, the free agent class, are ready to make a significant jump consistently into a man from year one to year two in their Patriots careers. And so I think for, for, for that group more than anything, they have to build on the positives of last year. And now this is trite. But they finished one and four, and that's left a sour taste in the mouths of, of New England fans and, and I think altered the perspective of, of what was a, a good bounce back year for them 
after two, 2020. And so it really, I think, starts with building on all the positives of last year, but then getting to work around their quarterback, Matt Jones, and with those other players, as Nelson Aguilar talked about the other day, who are coming back for year two in their Patriots experience. And for them now, okay, I know what's involved as a receiver in the Patriots offense. I know, you know, what routes I have to run. We have communication. I understand, you know, how, how we do business here. Now it's time to get down to business and, and net that improvement that the organization seems to believe this team is right for. Mac Jones, and I'm glad you bring up Mac. We're going to get into some questions about him. Obviously, he enjoyed a real level of success as a rookie. He did appear to hit a bit of a wall down the stretch. What's the primary focus for him if he wants to get to where he needs to be in year two? For me, it feels a little bit like, and I've used this before, that baseball analogy where a young pitcher has enjoyed success the first time through the lineup and now the veterans will be able to say, all right, I know what's coming. He needs to be able to maybe anticipate some of those adjustments he's going to see down the road. Again, if I, I think this is my own experience, if he wants to be able to become a really consistent year-to-year starter in the National Football League. Yeah, Chris, I think there's, there's more to it as well from a physical standpoint. You know, as, a, as a pitcher, you develop your repertoire. Uh, you know, you work on refining your pitches, developing greater stamina. At least that's in the pre-analytics pitch limit days. Uh, but, you know, the, the young guy that comes into the league and hits that wall um, by late September in the major leagues. Well, the following year, he's trained himself. He's prepared himself mentally. Now he's going to have a, a, a different approach from the mental standpoint, how he tries to set up hitters. Yeah, they'll have the book on him, but he's also going to have the book on them. And at the same time, he's going to work on his craft. And, and I think as a quarterback, it's very similar for Matt. We have seen already evidence in some of the videos and pictures that have been posted online and, and heard from players, certainly uh, the testimony has been there uh, from a number of players, including, as mentioned uh, just a couple of days ago, as we speak uh, from Nelson Aguilar, that physically he looks good. He's been working out. He's been a guy who's led by example during the off-season conditioning program. And all of that is part of his improvement from a physical standpoint. He talked about asserting leadership and, and being more of a leader at the end of last year's season following that loss to Buffalo in the AFC wildcard round. And there have been, again, words spoken by teammates that, that seem to be a testament to that, that, that Mac has been that kind of guy for them this offseason. We've seen him organizing, or at least being part of group throwing sessions in, in Florida at Aguilar's old high school and elsewhere, working with Tom House. And, you know, it's hard, again, to say like what this offense is going to look like. There are new players coming in, Devontae Parker, Taekwon Thornton, what kind of an impact will that rookie have with his speed? You know, what's the offensive line going to look like for them uh, now without Shaq Mason and Ted Karras? We presume that Cole Strange will be a starter on the interior, that Michael Lowenna will slide in, but no, there are no givens there, of course. Uh, but I think from the standpoint of, of Mac Jones' development, you know, for him, it's going to coincide too with how the offense develops around him. I think, you know, we had that conversation all, all last season. Are the Patriots holding him back? Do they, you know, they were running uh, as a priority. They were an offense that, you know, certainly had limitations in, in that they, they kind of took some of those guardrails away as the season went along. And Matt continued to prove himself and continued to answer all the tests. Uh, but this year, they're going into the season uh, again with a new play caller. Uh, I would imagine that they're going to make some some changes based again on, on some of the personnel and the way they have drafted 
in, in, with the addition of Devontae Parker offensively and the fact that right now they don't have a, a real fullback uh, in, the, in the mix, which is certainly unusual uh, for them compared to the recent past. Uh, so that development of the offense overall is going to have to coincide with Max development individually. Which new face are you most excited to see? Either a rookie or a newcomer, whether it's Devontae Parker or the guy who stands out for me, uh, a little bit of Tyquan Thornton, but but also Marcus Jones is a really intriguing puzzle piece when you consider his overall skill set. Yeah, I think Marcus Jones is probably a player who's elicited more excitement than any draft pick, it seems to me, based on his playmaking ability uh, as not only a cornerback, but obviously in the return game and somebody that showed uh, some, some dynamic skills offensively on a limited basis, basis well at the University of Houston. And it's funny, Chris, for me, I don't know if it's the I'm most excited about, but I'm most curious about, most intrigued by a, a couple of guys from last year's draft class. Because it seems to me, based on what we've been told and, and what the Patriots did and did not do, and going back to Matt Groh's post-draft comments as the director of player personnel, that they kind of see Cam McGrone, the linebacker from Michigan, taken late in last year's draft as an extra pick this year. He tore his ACL at Michigan. He demonstrated a lot of the skills physically that people were looking for the Patriots to draft this year in a linebacker. Speed, the ability to run down ball carriers, the ability to stick with somebody in coverage. He was a bit up and down his last year, Michigan. Again, the season was cut short by the torn ACL. He came out early. Some people thought he might have been better suited uh, to stay in college for another year. But he's a guy, at least the Patriots had a chance to be around every day in their building and to see on the practice field by the end of the year. And so it seems to me, based on the fact that they didn't take a linebacker high, that kind of player, even though they had traded for Mac Wilson as a smaller, faster linebacker, that they have to look. Or, and again, this is my presumption that they look at Cam McGrone as a guy that on tape, what they saw and having had him in the building is every bit as good, if not better than some of those players that were available to, to them at that position early in this year's draft. And along with that, Ronnie Perkins, an edge mm -hmm. defender, I think that's an area that, you know, is quietly a, 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 a bit of a, a possible uh, trouble uh, point for them. Uh, you know, we know about Matt Judon, but I, I still need, think they need some compliments uh, along that defensive line uh, to go with Judon on the outside and Barmore on the inside, and in, in, in addition to Dietrich Wise. So what kind of player is Ronnie Perkins? We didn't really get to see him at all last year. Another guy that they drafted fairly high, of course, coming out of a good program at Oklahoma. There are a couple of guys, and, and I'm glad you bring up McGrone's name because I, I put them in the category of, oh, yeah, he's on the roster. McGrone, Raquan McMillan, yeah. um, Ronnie Perkins, these are all guys that we did not get a chance to see last year, and I am intrigued. I, I agree with you. I'm intrigued at the opportunity to be able to see these guys and what they can do. And again, I think that feeds into that whole linebacker discussion around the draft. I, I want to ask you really specifically about those edge guys. And One name that's still out there on that secondary free agent market is Trey Flowers. Do you think the Patriots are going to be able to you know, maybe come to terms with him? Is he one of those situations where he will sign maybe right before training camp. He's a guy for me who I think if they can make the money work, it makes a lot of sense to have him back in New England. Yeah, it would seem to make all the sense in the world. And it's certainly not impressed that every year it seems they bring somebody back. And last year was Jamie Collins 
who was brought back for a second time during the course of the season. Obviously, you know, Trey had a good run here. He was injured a bit as a rookie, but from season two through four, he set himself up for a very nice payday from Matt Patricia and the Detroit Lions. So one would think that, you know, that maybe the Patriots, if they're not in a position to make an offer to him, or at least keeping tabs on what his market is. I guess the other part of that question, though, is do they want to go with a guy like that, or do they want to try to commit to some of these younger players mm -hmm. like uh, Perkins? like uh, Josh Uche, uh, again, different types of players on, on, on the edge defensively than I think Trey Flowers. But I do believe that they have to bolster that defensive front. And so from my standpoint, and I presume yours too, that Trey Flowers is a guy that would make sense for them schematically, obviously, uh, but even at his age, you know, as a, as a good fit, not only for 2022, but you know, presuming things work out uh, for 2023, if, if not longer. Uh, you know, no one other guy, Chris, I'll just throw out there too, uh, in, on the back end defensively that, that I would add to that mix that you, you, you mentioned uh, would be Sean Wade. We didn't really get a chance to see him in the second year after the Patriots traded for him a late round pick from the Ravens last year as a rookie. And, and considering the state of the depth chart at the quarterback position for this team, I mean, he's another guy. He would be the third guy on my list of the most intriguing players to watch this offseason uh, in you know the, uh, the OTAs and then, of course, moving into training camp. The, that secondary free agent market, one more familiar name along the lines of Trey Flowers. I want to get your take on this. Are we going to see Dante Hightower on the field for the Patriots in week one, or is he going to be elsewhere, or will he be retired? You know, it's funny you say that because I, I've, I've wondered whether they would bring Hightower back on a very limited role. Uh, you're not asking him to do as much uh, from the linebacker position uh, as the, the quarterback back of the, the defense. And I'm not sure that that would really you know, be ideal for him if that's something that he would want to take on. But I, I do think that, you know, considering you know, where he is and where the market has been this off season, particularly for guys like that, uh, you know, I know that the bigger linebackers aren't coming out of college and even for NFL teams, the bigger linebackers have been in the pros for a while. The roles just aren't there for them. In, in, in this game of sub defenses, the way they were when, you know, Bill Belichick drafted to that blueprint and, and, and brought in guys like Hightower and Gerard Mayo, that, that big physical linebacker reminiscent of the guys that he coached in New York and Cleveland from the physical standpoint. But I wouldn't be surprised, uh, you know, by anything, but especially I think, you know, if, if Trey Flowers comes here on, on, on short money or if Dante Hightower really wants to play another year, and give it a go and the Patriots say okay we'll meet you halfway but we're going to do it with a limited role for you we'd like to have you back but you know maybe it's just more of a, of a rusher than somebody who's off the ball at the linebacker position talked with someone else a, a couple of weeks ago and they brought up the idea of Dante Hightower going to Vegas yeah it's a great you know and that's a great point and, and a great possibility too I'd imagine because Josh has brought in so many guys from New England even while uh, you know asserting that he does not intend to uh, try to replicate the Patriot way out in the in, in Vegas, uh, along with Dave Ziegler as the general manager. But certainly they have that track record already this offseason of bringing in former Patriots. Uh, we've jokingly referred to uh, the Raiders as Patriots West uh, <laughs> since McDaniels and Ziegler were hired and started with those transactions. And of course, the Pats are going to have a good look at the Raiders uh, in the, the preseason uh, with likely joint practices between the two teams, as has been reported. And then, of course, see them further down the line. I wouldn't be shocked 
at all if, if Dante Hightower is there in that mix. I think the age is a question. I think the, you know, the injuries over the course of his uh, career, but especially of late, uh, might be a concern. And, you know, and, and again, the question is, does he really want to come back, particularly if, if the terms are such economically that, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense for him to continue to play professional football and put, put his body, his reshaped body after, you know, of course, taking a year off with the opt-out in 2020. He was a different looking player last year from a physical standpoint, uh, dropping weight, taking a different approach conditioning wise. And of course, all after missing that season and, and how do he and his wife want to approach things from a family standpoint, they have a young family now. And you know, while I believe Dante does not uh, remain in new England uh, during the off season exclusively, uh, nonetheless, you know, it's a little bit easier to come up here from the South uh, in, in Foxborough than maybe to go out West mm-hmm. to Las Vegas, although the weather's going to be a lot better. That's true. I I want to shift gears here. I want to get your early thoughts on the schedule. One of the things that really stands out for me initially is December, four straight games against teams that made the playoffs last year. That has the potential to be really, in my mind, the sort of stretch that ultimately defines a season. Absolutely, Chris. I look at the final piece of the schedule, those four games that you mentioned, very similarly to last year's final four games. And I look at the beginning of the schedule as well in a very similar way, 2021. I think that the Patriots are going to be challenged to avoid the same kind of start and finish to this season as they experienced last year. When you look at the back end, you have Las Vegas on the road. You got to go to Arizona. They're likely to stay out west, I imagine. And then you go to Vegas against a playoff team with the institutional knowledge that Josh McDaniels and Patrick Graham are going to have. And one expects the Raiders to be a more consistent, improved football team in 2022 than 2021. Cincinnati, the defending AFC champions, coming here on Christmas Eve against the Dolphins and, of course, at Buffalo to wrap it up. Now you go back to the beginning of the schedule at Miami. We know the Patriots haven't beaten the Dolphins since Cam Newton's first game as a Patriot in 2020. Tua hasn't lost to the Pats. Now he has Tyree Kill in that offense. Mike McDaniel is the new head coach. He comes from that Shanahan coaching tree from the 49ers with an offensive scheme that will include that zone running scheme that gives the Patriots so many problems, regardless of who's in the backfield. And the Dolphins have certainly done a lot to bolster that backfield. And let's keep in mind, the Patriots struggle to stop Miami offensively. And at the same time, the Dolphins have Josh Boyer remaining as the defensive coordinator with his institutional knowledge. And he's done a great job for Miami defensively against the Patriots with Tom Brady at quarterback, with Newton, and more recently, Matt Jones going back to the end of the 2019 season. I think Pittsburgh on the road could be a very difficult game in week two. You get Baltimore at home in week three. Green Bay in week four. Again, a, a very similar way to start and end this season compared to last year. Uh, two other things for me that stand out, the bye, almost, really almost perfectly placed halfway through the season. And then the three games in 12 days run from late November to early December. I know every team has to go through that, but it's another challenge at an already dicey time of year. When you reference those games in a short period of time, uh, they have, I think, uh, uh, scheduled with uh, as, uh, as many, if not more, short weeks in it than any team in the league. I think they're one of the two teams that have more short weeks, so to speak, than other teams around the league. And it's going to be a lot more taxing schedule from a travel standpoint than they've experienced in a couple of years, at least, 
Uh, you know, last year the, tr the travel for the Patriots was was relatively easy compared to even 2020, and certainly I think this year when you talk about the length of the trips, but also late in the season, again, at Arizona, at Las Vegas, and coming back against the, the Bengals for a Saturday game after a Sunday night affair in Las Vegas, and then after you get Miami on the 1st of January, having to go to Buffalo, and that game could be on a short week by a day, depending again when, when uh, television schedules that game, whether it's a Saturday or Sunday. I think this is the first year that I can remember where they play on Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, and New Year's Day. Just the, one of the first things I check every year when the schedule comes out are the holidays. Mm -hmm. And we've been lucky during my tenure. The first nine seasons that I've called Patriots games, there've been no Thanksgiving games. I've been able to spend Christmas Eve and Christmas Day at home. And, you know, it, for those who celebrate New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, it, it's been pretty kind to the Patriots as well. But as you mentioned, this year, the, we're at Minnesota on Thanksgiving night. Uh, and uh, then on Christmas Eve, at least we're at home and at least it's a one o'clock game Fair against point. the Cincinnati Bengals. But nonetheless, better get my shopping out of the way before the <laughs> 11th hour because <laughs> there won't be time and I'm certainly not going to have anywhere to go at Patriot Place it's going to be mobbed uh, <laughs> to get in and out by the time kickoff occurs at one o'clock as a broadcaster what game or site or stadium are you most excited about when it comes to 2022 well Vegas is certainly up there because we've, we've never been and it's a new stadium and, and I'm excited and interested to see what what the Raiders look like under Josh McDaniels and see what that stadium is like to call a game there. But the, the two uh, near the top, uh, two of the first three road games are the most exciting for me. And when people ask me, where are your favorite places to broadcast around the league? Uh, considering that I have not gone to Seattle, I've not done a game at Seattle. I missed that trip in 2020 because we didn't travel due to COVID. Uh, but the, my, my two favorite places thus far on the road as a broadcaster in the NFL have been Green Bay, Lambeau Field, mm -hmm. the history of it. Uh, you sense it. You obviously get a chance to see it. They have a wonderful Hall of Fame there. Uh, it, it's a stadium that reminds me, and, and, and it should because it's modeled after Notre Dame Stadium. It reminds me of all the games that I called, and I did eight of them at Notre Dame Stadium while broadcasting Navy football, and the, the fact that it's the Packers. And even though you stay in Appleton, Wisconsin, and it was one of the, the, the outposts in the, in the Midwest League when I was calling minor league baseball in the early to mid-90s. Nonetheless, that notwithstanding, doing a game in Green Bay, I don't think there's any place like it. it, it it's, it's like Fenway Park, like Wrigley Field, one of the only places in, in professional football uh, that, that you get that kind of feeling. And another uh, you know, great setting is Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. I just I love the setting of the stadium, the view of uh, the Pittsburgh skyline. As you look out from our press box location over the confluence of the three rivers, but even more than that, all the fans in their black and gold that tend to congregate in downtown Pittsburgh and walk over on the pedestrian bridges to the stadium where they're, they're, they're terrible towels. And it's a great football town. I really appreciate both of those sites because of the history of the two franchises, those two along with the Patriots 49ers and, and, you know, Cowboys fans would make the case for the Cowboys. I mean, those are the marquee franchises in the NFL for me. Uh, others have had their moments, but you know, when I think about football in the national football league, it's, it's Green Bay, you know, first in the 60s, and it's the Steelers in the 70s, and then it's the, mm -hmm. the Niners, and of course the Patriots in the 2000s. Give me your two favorites 
in maybe your two, I'm not going to get you in trouble here by saying your two least favorites, but the two places <laughs> that maybe, you know, you don't mind if they're not on the schedule that year, put it that way. Well, well let, uh, look at it this way. I'm glad Miami's out of the way after week one. And I know people are, are, are going to think you're crazy, Miami. You don't like going to Miami it, from a broadcasting standpoint. And, th and that's, what's important to, to keep in mind when I give you my favorites mm -hmm. and, yes. and, and, yes. <laughs> and my least desirable Miami's booth is tiny. It's in the corner of the end zone. Mm -hmm. The windows don't open. So you can't hear and really feel the crowd. Uh, we can't sit three in front. Scott Zolak, our producer, Mark Capello, and myself, the way we do in every other booth. It's just an uncomfortable experience. And again, Chris, I'm going to sound like the, 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 the prima donna broadcaster, uh, spoiled <laughs> media guy. <laughs> the, the, the food in the press box, the food they give you, and the options around the stadium, they're just they're just not up to par. I hear you. I hear just you. Just not up to par. Yep. Uh, so, so Miami for me, like on this year's schedule, and, and the Jets, because we're not going to New York City. MetLife, I, I actually like calling a game in MetLife Stadium. I like it better with the Giants because I, I, I like that royal blue when the stadium is dressed mm -hmm. up in Giants colors and it's, and it's always packed and it's a great atmosphere. With the Jets, it's just a lot of that green. Now, the Jets should be better this year. I think there'll be a lot of excitement. But nonetheless, by the time the Patriots play them in week eight, who knows when the Patriots have played there in the past. And I think last year was an exception to that. But for the most part in recent years, there has been very little excitement there. And there have been a lot of gray, empty seats mm -hmm. in MetLife Stadium for that game. And again, you know, we're staying somewhere in North Jersey, uh, off the turnpike. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are, you know, it's not that you can wander the city exactly. the day before a game. It, it's just not the, the best experience uh, in a lot of different ways. I'm with you on Pittsburgh. And I think one of the more underrated places, at least from a press box perspective, is Baltimore. Baltimore is always loud. It's got a great community Absolutely. around it. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the best broadcasting booths in the league are Gillette Stadium mm -hmm. and Baltimore. And, you know, to me, it's very similar, similar broadcast setup where we're, you're at midfield, you're kind of on the, on, on the lower side of things right off the main concourse of the stadium. And that's one of the few NFL stadiums, too, I think, that has some personality to it in, in terms of fitting in. There's consistency between Camden Yards, which mm -hmm. is still one of my favorite baseball parks and the stadium the Ravens play at. I, I want to say M&T Bank Stadium. I think it's still named M&T Bank Stadium. I remember when it was PSI Net Stadium after it first opened. And, and it's, it's, a great, it's a great fan base. You know, mm -hmm. They have turned Baltimore over the course of the last 20 years into a football town, whereas for so long it was known as a baseball town. Uh, the Ravens have done that. The Orioles have helped that cause as well. But uh, it's, a, you know, and it's, 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 it's the Patriots and the Ravens. There's a lot of uh, animosity there between the fans and the Pats, you know, the franchises, you know, all the intrigue that still goes back uh, through those great playoff matchups they've had uh, in the John Harbaugh, Bill Belichick days. You posted a very heartfelt tribute to Gino Capaletti and his family on Thursday on social media when it was revealed that he had passed away. I'm curious, what was it like being part of a broadcast crew that followed the likes of the legendary Gil Santos and Gino Capaletti? Yeah, you know, it's funny, Chris. Um, I said from day one that, that there's no way we could replace those guys, um, that there's no way that I could replace Gil Santos, that Scott and I, Zoe and I had to carve out our own little niche. And that, that legacy, you know, I, I feel that legacy every time I walk into that booth and I think about it a lot. I, I, I first listened to Gil and Gino 
while I was calling Navy games and really had no association with the Patriots whatsoever. And I started watching the three games to glory series because I love their broadcast. And it, and it was a time where I didn't, you know, I didn't hear a lot of other NFL out of market games. And I started to listen to Gil and Gino on those three games to glory DVDs from the early two thousands. And there's such an easy rapport between the two of them and a great relationship. I really believe it was like the perfect marriage in radio, certainly for a football crew, the kind of rapport uh, that, that exists sometimes in other sports, baseball, which is a radio favorable game, but I hadn't heard it as much in football. And yet with Gil and Gino, and Gil, uh, Gino described it as a simpatico, that was the word he often used in interviews, that came across. I mean, Gil, the classic football voice, a Hall of Famer, a team Hall of Famer, and Gino, of course, Mr. Patriot, uh, somebody involved in every aspect of the organization, played on the field in every phase of the game. And uh, he carried himself with such grace and humility, truly a gentleman. I didn't have an opportunity to spend a lot of time with either one more with Gil, uh, who had actually uh, you know, given me some advice and constructive criticism while I was calling the Navy, having first reached out to him. But the time that I was in Gino's company and certainly through the years, and I've heard a million stories about both from Scott and, and Mark, our producer, and, and every everyone else associated with the broadcast who had a chance, the privilege of working with those two gentlemen. I've heard a million stories, uh, you know, on the road, the restaurants, uh, when I go to steakhouse with, with our producer and the rest of our crew, they get steak. I, I tend to get salmon and it's always pointed out that that's what, you know, Gino always got, but uh, just a class act, tremendous human being. And, you know, for me, it's, you know, going to the, go to, I'll go into the booth this year, uh, like I always have, and, and try to honor that legacy. The game comes first. It always did with those two, but uh, uh, they, they, they told the story with a lot of warmth and perspective, uh, whether the Patriots were losing uh, and, or, or, of course, celebrating great moments. Uh, you know, Gil and Gino just had, the, you could tell they loved working with one another being on the air, and I think listeners love being with them on those Sundays. One of the things that stood out for me on a consistent basis was when both of them would be at camp, or particularly Gino. There was a level of respect when he was around the players, when he was around Bill. I don't want to say it was quite awe, but there was a genuine feeling of this guy is special. This is a guy who played when it was leather helmets and dirt fields and was a success and touched, as you mentioned, every single aspect of the game to be able to see that reflected in the faces of Bill Belichick, Stephen Guskowski, Adam Vinatieri was really something special. Yeah, Chris. And I think that there's that quality about certain players from any era. It's, it's almost like they're regal. There's mm -hmm. a nobility there. Mm -hmm. I saw it, for example, at the Naval Academy when Roger Staubach came to the game. There, there are certain people that you're around that, you, that they have a different presence, a different air about them. And yet there's not an arrogance. They're approachable. Uh, you know, there and Gino certainly was that, but yet they project that air that breeds reverence, respect. And I think the thing about Gino that I didn't understand really until honestly the last 24 hours or so were the, the true struggles he had and what it took for him to establish himself mm -hmm. as an all time great. I knew that he'd been in Canada and that he came out of the University of Minnesota and for a time was a bartender. I had no idea, you know, the lengths that he went to, to try to play professional football. And, you know, he went, went to the Ontario Rugby Football Union and played for the Sarnia Imperials, a semi-pro league, basically. He was cut from the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. 
uh, in the CFL. He'd been with Winnipeg and he was traded away. Uh, he went back to Minneapolis. He found out that Lou Saban was uh, scouting for players in the area, got a hold of his number, placed the call to Saban. And, and, you know, he was a guy that played in a, a run-heavy offense at Minnesota. He was a quarterback, and he kicked – but he only kicked extra points, and they didn't kick field goals. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he started out with the Patriots as a safety. And in one of his early games, had three interceptions against the Raiders with Tom Flores and Babe Perilli as the Raiders quarterback. And, of course, a year later, Perilli came to uh, New England with Boston – and Gino was converted from safety to wide receiver by Mike Holovac, I believe. And he and Babe famously went on to form the Grand Opera and each went into the Patriots Hall of Fame. In Gino's case, of course, as an all-time great in the AFL as, a, as the, the league's all-time uh, scoring leader. But just a tremendous career, a tremendous person. And uh, as you said, you know, somebody that uh, immediately had that respect uh, from the coaches and the players, even the youngest of players. And, and I just quickly add to Chris, I think that's a tribute to, to Bill Belichick and the coaching staff of the Patriots and the organization, Robert Kraft, you know, the, the, the Kraft's emphasis on preserving history and having a special place like the Patriots Hall of Fame, try to maintain strict standards on who gets in. And I think also the fact that the Patriots players are educated on the game's history and especially the franchise's history. For a franchise that has had so many transformative talents especially over the last 25 years. I don't think it's a stretch to say he was the most, one of the most important people in the history of the franchise. Chris, think about how many, you know, just from a broadcasting standpoint, which is the way I, 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 I see it first, given my role, how many generations of Patriot fans, how many generations of New England natives, uh, you know, uh, transplants grew up and learned about football from Gil and Gino, you know, and from the, from the playing standpoint, you know, played defense, played offense, uh, played special teams, of course, obviously, was in the AFL, was there at the point of the merger to the NFL, was here in, in, in the broadcast booth through the leanest of times, and of course was in the broadcast booth in the greatest of times. I was told by someone, and I've, I've tried to confirm this, that while he was on the plane often, Pete Carroll, when he was the coach, would go back and sit with Gino and they would chat. And, and Gino had a love of talking about football. Uh, throughout his career. I remember I was reading a, a, a column or a story by Lee Montville after Gino retired. And, you know, one of the things that was pointed out in the story is that Gino was still one of those old guys in the locker room that liked to talk football. Yeah, where the play, like the new, the new age players had a lot of different interests, but, but it reminded me going back to your earlier baseball analogy of the guys that hung around the clubhouse and the only the, the throwback baseball players that, that I came into professional baseball covering who wanted to stay in the clubhouse, play cards, watch other baseball games and talk baseball. Mm -hmm. And that changed during the course of my career. And, and, and Gino was described in that retirement piece by Lee Montfield as being someone that at the age of 38 always loved to talk about football. And uh, he was very open about his romance with the game uh, during his career when he retired. Uh, from playing and when he retired from broadcasting as well. Bob, last question for me. How long did it take you to heal up from the Boston Marathon? Because <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get back out there right now. I'm, I'm like, I'm okay. You know what? I've, I, I did five miles the other day. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like, okay, let's start that process again. You and me both, pal. I, I took me a, it took me a little while. I had, uh, I had cra uh, calf issues going into the race. It took about three weeks of PT and some therapy, acupuncture included, to get myself to the starting line and to get through the marathon. 
and I don't know if I overcompensated or, you know, just my body in my mid fifties is breaking down. But when I finished the race, I went in, well, I, I went in with calf issues. I came out with a left knee and left ankle, <laughs> <laughs> but I had some treatment on it the following week and, uh, you know, did some exercises. I rode the bike to try to stay in, in, in cardio shape. And uh, I had a chance to go out on the road and ran, ran a nice five miles the other day. It, was, it felt fantastic. I haven't been able to get out and run the last couple of days because of some other uh, work around the house and, and, and some other things going on in our lives. But uh, I look forward to going out there and doing it again. Five miles, six maybe. Once in a while, I'd maybe stretch it to seven. I don't know if I'll do 26.2 again. The other day, against probably my better judgment, I signed up for the Cape Cod Marathon. Chris, you, you are in a better October. man than I. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I get there. But it's, I, I just, there was something about that day, man, for me, that just, it was one of the greatest days of my life. It was just fantastic. I, I totally agree with you. You know, and, and I think the thing for me too, part of the reason why I would be reluctant to commit to another marathon, I don't know that I could come close to equaling that experience, matching mm -hmm. that experience, even with a pre-raced injury, because it was such a beautiful day. The crowd is everything and more that people promised it would be. And I ran the whole way smiling, sometimes talking with you for a few steps anyway. And it was, people ask me, oh, it's fun finishing, but now while you're running and I had fun, I did enjoy. Now I walked every mile for, uh, you know, through the water station. So I, I probably ran nine tenths of a mile and walked a tenth of a mile, but I had a blast. I loved it. I was on, I was smiling the entire way from start to finish people watching, uh, you know, at this, looking at the spectators, uh, trying to keep up with some of the other runners, trying to maintain my cadence and rhythm and so forth. It's just amazing. Everyone should get the opportunity once in their life to run through a packed Kenmore square with crowds cheering you on. I just, I get goosebumps even sitting here talking about it. It was just, it was one of the reasons why, and a long laundry list of reasons why it was such a phenomenal day. And I'm glad that you are part of it. And I'm glad that we had a chance to experience it together. Me too. Me too. And I, and I couldn't agree more. People told me that the crowd will carry home. And, and that was like, my, my objective was to get to Boston. I thought if I could get to Boston because people had told me, once you get there, you know, don't worry, the crowd's going to push you, push you past the finish line. And yet I still had no idea what to expect. In, in some ways it was a blur. And yet in other ways I can remember distinct faces and, and, and even voices at times. I only wish that I had written my name on, with, with a Sharpie on my arm. Well, I was handed a Sharpie before the race and I thought, why do I want to write my name on my arm <laughs> or on my, my shirt? And then I realized that after the first you know, quarter mile, Oh, that's it. So that the that's people who are watching who have no yep. idea who you are will cheer your name. It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. Bob, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And hopefully we can connect again sometime before the start of training camp in July. And we can, we can take another look at uh, what awaits the New England Patriots for the 2022 season. I would love to, Chris. And now that I know that you're, you're signed up for the Cape Cod Marathon, you might inspire me to, to give it another go. But we'll it's stay. worth it. It is. You. All the best here. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. I'm right there with you, my friend. Take care, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Chris.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.